Jewish Money Matters, episode 302, The Most Powerful Woman in American Economic History with Wall Street Journal senior economics writer John Hilsenrath. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. Yellen's view was she didn't feel that she had to or wanted to just lean in to be heard because she was a woman. Uh-huh. Um, she wasn't a person who would pound the table just because she felt people weren't listening to her. She was a person who would pound the table when she thought she had something important to say. Hmm. And she was someone who stood up to Vice President Gore, for instance, when they had disagreements over climate change strategies. She was a person who stood up to Federal Reserve officials when she didn't agree with their strategies for dealing with the financial crisis. She did pound the table aggressively. But, you know, after work, she would go out and have a martini with you and let her hair down, so to speak. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. Today, we're in conversation with John Hilsenrath, author of the new book, Yellen, the trailblazing economist who navigated an era of upheaval. John Hilsenrath is a senior writer for the Wall Street Journal. He's been a Pulitzer Prize finalist several times and was part of the team which helped the Wall Street Journal win a Pulitzer Prize back in 2002. He is recognized as one of the nation's most influential financial journalists. He's been a contributor to Fox News, Fox Business, CNBC, ABC, CBS, PBS, NPR, MSNBC, C-SPAN, and now Jewish Money Matters. You just heard John speak about one of the lessons he learned from Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen, the most powerful woman in U.S. economic policymaking history. So she leaned in when she needed to. Something that sheds some light into the way she managed to break the many ceilings she encountered throughout her career. What were those ceilings? What was the deeper story of Yellen's personal life, which in turn tells a great story of American economic history? Additionally, in many ways, Yellen's story is a classic immigrant story, something that John speaks about beautifully as he himself is a child of Jewish immigrants who arrived in this country escaping Nazi Germany. Lessons in making career choices, both from Yellen and from John's father, a Holocaust survivor, that we'll want to take to heart ourselves and impart in our children. And ultimately, why did Janet Yellen take the job as Secretary of the Treasury at such a tumultuous time? That is a lesson in and of itself. This and more in a fascinating conversation with Wall Street Journal senior writer John Hilsenruth. John Hilson Rath, welcome to Jewish Money Matters. It's so good uh, to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm really, really excited to talk about your new book. I should say book debut. This is your first time writing a book. I'm sure there's many more coming, but the book is Yellen, the trailblazing economist who navigated an era of upheaval. And as someone who's had so much success in your journalism career, John, 
you could have written about so many things. I was like thinking right. about this yesterday, like John could have written about so many things. And I, like I said, I suspect there will be many more books coming. Why your book about Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen? What was the impetus for to write this work? What was your fascination with her? Right. Well, uh, so th there were several ideas that actually came together as most decent ideas do in the shower. Um, <laughs> and that was, uh, you know, so, so Janet Yellen became Treasury Secretary after uh, Joe Biden was elected president. And at that point, she was clearly a historic figure. Uh, she had she was the first woman to serve as U.S. Treasury Secretary, the first woman to serve as Federal Reserve Chair. And also the first person in American history to serve as Fed chair, treasury secretary and chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. So mm -hmm. she was a historically important person. But what I realized was that uh, underneath that resume, so to speak, there was a love story uh, that could become a really interesting way to tell a much bigger story than just Janet Yellen. So mm -hmm. she's married to um, a man named George Akerlof, who won a Nobel Prize and did a lot of interesting work really over 50 years, kind of changing the way people, economists, think about how the economy behaves. And it occurred to me that between the two of them, Janet Yellen and George Akerlof, they've been involved in almost every major economic debate of the last 60 years. And so what I wanted to do was to use their love story, uh, and it really is a love story, to tell the story of modern economics, which is what I've been writing about and covering uh, at the Wall Street Journal for the last 25 years. So they're really the central characters in a much broader drama. It stresses me just to think what the dinner table conversation is like. <laughs> You know, you, you, you know, if, if you let them get into like really technical stuff, they will and your head will be spinning. Uh, but they're also two fun people and they like to do a little storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, so we had some very fun conversations over Chinese food about how they met and their first date uh, and, and things like that. And they, they liked laughing uh, about um some of the mistakes that uh, George made on their first date with each other. And, and so, so you realize there's this love story that tells a bigger story. What, what is it about their relationship that really sheds light on the pieces of economic history that you're interested in telling the world? Well, I mean, it's two things. First of all, uh, the main thing is just the ground they covered the two of them. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, Akerlof really kind of, played an important role in theoretical debates going all the way back to the 1960s. And Yellen, uh, starting in the 1990s, was has really been at the uh, helm of the ship, so to speak, uh, in navigating economic policy uh, since the 1990s. So the two of them covered a lot of terrain with each other. Uh, they were in an immense number, number of battles together, and they covered both the theoretical side of economics, which I find interesting, and you have to understand to understand um, kind of where we've been and where we're going, but also the actual events and the actual crises that we've been through, the financial crisis of 2008, the COVID crisis, the COVID, uh, the China trade shock, so much, so much terrain. And they've done it in a way that's been a full-on partnership. Uh, and so in addition to covering modern economics, They've really kind of been a part of something else that's happened over the last 50 years, which is 
uh, American family life really has has been redefined. You know, so when they were married in the 1970s, we still had a you know pretty much traditional families where the male was the breadwinner and uh, the, the woman was the stay at home mom. Uh, but they kind of defined their relationship as an equal partnership. And more American families have kind of redefined themselves in the same way. Right. So in addition to all these other stories, it's a story of the evolution of a modern American family in which, you know, George um, is a full participant in family life and really played a central role in raising their son, Robbie. And -hmm. also Janet is fully engaged in in work and very often she's the one who's kind of leading them in different places because of her career. Uh, And so it becomes a full and equal partnership uh, at home and at work for the two of them. So there are so many facets of this that I think tell the story of how American, the American economy and how American family life changed over the last 50 years. So, so he's definitely was a very progressive man, let's just say, and they're both in a sense ahead of their time. Mm -hmm. Um, For now, us now, in 2023, this is more and more common. But as you said, this wasn't necessarily the norm back then. Is Did you find that there was anything in their upbringing that perhaps, I mean, I could only imagine that for Akerlov, you know, maybe he had a a, a, a role model, a female role model, um, or and, and, and Yellen either had it or was ready to break from what was the norm back then. Was there anything in their upbringing that shed some light into their very progressive revolutionary yeah, ideas yeah, of equality? I, I, I'm laughing because this podcast is Jewish Money Matters, right? So yeah. this is leading exactly where you would expect to. Okay, strong, let's hear it. Strong mothers. They both had very strong mother figures. So, um, so George, um, had, uh, a, a mother who was a chemist, uh, and had, um, very kind of strong views and really, um, strong ambitions, uh, for, for her children. Um, her own mother was also a very kind of strong willed, intelligent, academic oriented person. And so he grew up in a household where it was just kind of, in his mind, understood and expected that, right. you know, that you you kind of listen, you, you listen to your mother and you respect your mother <laughs> and you expect her to have kind of a, a full and fruitful life. And, you know, so when he was he wasn't threatened by this idea of a, of a woman. Achi- no, it was, achieving. It, it was it was ingrained into him. And, and you know, so. When, interestingly, when he was struggling with math uh, at Yale as a college freshman, um, the, his parents lived in Princeton because his father was also uh, a chemist and, uh-huh. and worked in and around Princeton. And mom was friends with uh, some very advanced mathematicians at the Institute for Advanced uh, Studies, where Einstein uh, uh, was based. And she connected uh, young George to some of the smartest mathematicians in the world to help him work out some of his basic algebra problems. And then, you know, so Janet Yellen also had a very strong mother figure. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother was a retired school teacher who had very high expectations for both of her children academically. When they were children, um, both were expected, uh, her, both she and her older brother, John, were expected not only to get their homework done every night, mm-hmm. but it had to be right. <laughs> they were not allowed to turn in homework with mistakes on it. So before any <laughs> teacher checked it, 
Mom checked it. And if there were problems, mom, mom was going to run them through the ringer and make sure that uh, that everything they turned in was right. So by the time George and Janet uh, met in uh, 1997, uh, they both came from from families with strong mother figures, with high expectations uh, mm-hmm. uh, for each other. High academic expectations sounds like a very Jewish immigrant story, doesn't it? Or a classic immigrant story in in many ways. Well, they, you know, they they are uh, immigrant families to a certain extent. Um, uh, so George's father was actually, uh, let me see, I believe Swedish. Um, the, the mother had, um, uh, Jewish roots from Eastern Europe and, and Yellen's family also so. had, had Jewish roots, uh, from Eastern Europe. Her mother had German Jewish, uh, descent and her father was Polish Jewish. Right. The, the, um, I, I think when Janet's mom and dad married, the German Jews weren't very happy that she was marrying into a Polish Jewish uh, family, mm-hmm. but, uh, but they got over it and everything worked out. <laughs> you know, I wonder going back to this is a little bit taking us away from BLM, but not, not too far off reading, um, reading a piece that you wrote. I mentioned to you earlier, I wrote that beautiful piece you wrote about your own family of, you come from a family of Jewish immigrants. You wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal of why America, what America gave my father and what he gave back. Speaking yeah. about your father's story, um, running from Nats, from the Nazis and arriving at this country at the age of 11, a little boy, right? Um, yeah. and that all coming out, uh, from the footsteps of that PBS documentary where, where your father's story was, was included. Do, John, do you see any parallels between your parents and your grandparents' legacy and values, the values they lived by as immigrants and kind of the values and the legacy that you see Janet and George, um, having strived to live by? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually, had not thought about that, but thinking mm-hmm. about it here, I'd say I, I, the common, the common value is love of country, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you said, my dad, uh, fled Nazi Germany. Uh, he was an orphan in France for, uh, for three years from 1939 to 41. His family was eventually reunited in the United States and they had nothing. Uh, his, his dad sold mm-hmm. eggs on the street to make ends meet. My dad, my dad sold um, newspapers as a little boy to make a few extra nickels for the family. Um, but they were grateful that they were here. I mean, how, you know, I mean, it, 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 how tragically so many other Jews didn't make it. Um, and they were determined to make a better life for themselves and to make some contribution to the society that took them in. My dad became a very successful doctor. I think that that immigrant ethos of, Kind of recognizing that, uh, that, that they were privileged to live in the United States, um, uh, w- was also burned into Janet Yellen and George Akerlof's mind. And probably even more than myself, uh, they had a desire to do something greater for society. And right. they were both very good at math, despite some of George's early struggles in it. And they decided that economics was a vehicle through which they could do, um, some greater good. Now, I will say, um, you know, depending on your ideology, you might have different views about whether they actually succeeded. Uh, you know, there are some people out there who think that 
you know, Yellen's um, policy making years have had their share of failures, uh, mm -hmm. most notably the inflation we're experiencing right now. So we could have a debate about that. But I don't think looking at the record that you can have a question about what they set out to do and kind of what their goals were. You know, I use the they use the analogy in their lives of um, of lighthouse keepers. They watched a film together with their son, Robbie, mm -hmm. years ago, a Japanese film uh, called uh, Great Joys and Small Sorrows about a Japanese couple uh, that work as lighthouse keepers in the post-World War II environment on the Japanese shoreline. And their entire life, their friendships, their family life, uh, their work life is all sewn together into this kind of greater mission of, of watching, of, of being the lighthouse keeper and watching the shoreline. And that's really the way Yellen and Akerlof kind of came to see their lives, that they were kind of lighthouse keepers for the broader economy. And that's what they had kind of, that's what their dinner conversations are about. Um, and, and that's where things can become um a little daunting if you're just sitting there listening in. And it's very interesting because what you're saying really reminds me of the fact I understand that she didn't, she was retired when the Biden administration offered her this job and she hesitated to take the position. She wasn't jumping at this opportunity and yet she yeah. ended up taking it. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? She, because she wasn't taking this for the money, I don't think. I mean, it has to do with what you just said and with this idea of a higher purpose and yeah. being needed and being of service. Well, she wasn't, you're, I mean, you're right. She became um, the Fed chair in 2014, 2015, actually. And then she left the job in 2018 uh, when uh, President Trump nominated Jerome Powell to replace her. And she thought her years of public life were over at that point. Mm -hmm. She was in her 70s. Um, and, uh, she was enjoying retirement. Um, she had been, you know, an academic and a public policymaker for many years. Uh, she actually made some money going out and giving some speeches for financial companies and such. She liked getting to bed early. Uh, when I say early, I mean like eight 30, uh, <laughs> at night and then getting up early to read her newspaper and drink her coffee. So she wasn't involved in the Biden campaign. Um, they were kind of holed up during COVID, uh, Janet and George, with their son, Robbie, for a while in the basement. And then after Biden was elected, um, his uh, some of his a couple of his advisors reached out to her and asked if she would be interested in being the Treasury secretary. You know, don't forget the economy was in a state of upheaval at the time because of the COVID lockdowns. And they felt they needed a trusted hand in charge of economic policymaking. And she said no. Uh, she wasn't interested in it. Um, and then they came back to her a few days later and asked her, are you sure? And then she went uh, to to George and Robbie. This is a very closely knit family. And they had a conversation in their kitchen and they decided together, the three of them, that if the president asked her to do the job, she has a duty to do it. And so on second thought, she agreed to do it. And boy, did she work into a walk herself into a complicated right. time as Treasury Secretary. You know, we were just coming out of COVID. There was a lot of stimulus that had been thrown at the economy, a lot more that the president Biden wanted to throw at the economy, which would ultimately cause inflation. And then, you know, she was a year away from Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, when, you know, she was going to have to lead a global sanctions campaign mm -hmm. uh, against the Russians. So it has been 
despite the hard job she's had in the past, it's been, I think, clearly the hardest job she's ever had. Right, right, right. And that whole point of her um, taking the job really speaks to that kind of Jewish value that I wanted to highlight that you 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 said it about being driven by a greater mission, right? A greater sense of purpose. Uh, she yeah. didn't do this to win a popularity contest, obviously. <laughs> and it, this must have been the, the hardest job uh, thus far. Now, going back to... Can I just, can I just say something about yeah. that that I think is interesting is, you know, so uh, this is a person who kind of came into her own in Washington. Washington is a place that's filled with highly ambitious people who mm-hmm. spend their whole, many of them spend their whole years plotting how they're going to kind of move up the ladder. And that was really never the way Yellen went about um, what she was doing. Uh, she huh. didn't kind of plot to become the Fed chair and she didn't plot to become the Treasury secretary. You know, when I asked her kind of what her mindset was in her job, she said her job was, you know, her mindset was always to just, do the best she could in the job she had. Uh, And because she did well in a number of them, she ended up being offered other jobs. I think it says to me, it says something about, um, you know, for people out there who are thinking about their own career aspirations, what to put first, what you're aspiring to or the job that you're doing at what you're doing right now. I love that. And it's the perfect segue to my question about, her experiences, because it's one thing what we described earlier on about home life and, you know, having Georgia's support um, full on 100%. But I can only imagine that what she must have experienced in the workforce, um, and I'm sure having the support at home helped, but you and I know that um, she was probably one of maybe the only woman in the room many, many times. And, yeah. and she she walked in a very male-dominated world and yeah. even till today but earlier on so much more dramatically so what did you learn about all the ceilings that she must have had yeah. to break over the years and the ways that she managed to do that it seems like it's it's a very the way what you just mentioned seems like it wasn't an, an aggressive uh you know kind of conniving type of way talk to us about how yeah. she managed to break those um so this, I mean, this is really interesting and like to, to me it shows the kind of rich the rich complex nature of the world we live in. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, you're right. Um, everywhere she went, uh, it, it was male dominated. Um, so uh, yeah, she, it, going all the way back to graduate school, um, when, when she went to graduate school at Yale in the 1960s um, for, for economics, she was the only woman in her um, graduate school class um, the uh, y- Yale undergraduate didn't even accept women at the time. Um, the Yale economics department, uh, which was progressive uh, in the day, had its faculty meetings at a, a, a male only club uh, nearby called Maury's where women weren't even allowed in. And when they showed up for, you know, for faculty meetings, they had to go, you know, they were expected to go in through the back door Oh my so gosh. this was a very male-dominated place. When she went to Harvard as his, as an assistant professor, I mean, uh, she was one of only two women on uh, on faculty at Harvard. Um, remarkably, I'm mean, just to give you a sense of what Harvard was like. This is the 1970s. There was another woman on faculty um, at, at the time uh, on the economics faculty. Her name was Gail Pearson. She was um, an athlete and a swimmer. Uh, who had moved over from uh, from Michigan. 
and gave up swimming because the pool at the at the at Harvard was a men's only pool and they swam naked in it. What? So yeah, oh my I mean, gosh. It was amazing. So Gail Pearson decided to take up rowing instead, and she actually built uh, the 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 uh, America's women's um, rowing program. Huh. Rowing wasn't even a women's sport uh, in the Olympics in the 1970s until Gail Pearson, Janet Yellen's colleague, uh, made it a sport. So you know Yellen wasn't granted tenure uh, at Harvard. Uh, she found it hard to find research partners. Her um, production of papers, which is really kind of what you advance on as an academic, um, uh-huh. suffered some because she had a hard time finding research partners. So yeah, it was, it was a challenge. At the same time, though, you know, the country started to change. And then so when Bill Clinton was, uh, became president, um, there was, you know, he, uh, wanted to bring more women into ec- senior economic policy positions. The first, his first chair of the Council of Economic Advisors was um, was Laura Tyson. That was mm-hmm. the first woman to run the Council of Economic Advisors. All right, check mark for Bill Clinton. Um, he nominated Yellen to become a governor at the Fed. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, check mark again for him. And then he asked her to go Yellen to go over to Sarah as, uh, as his second chair of the Council, third chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Okay. So they were making things kind of more accessible to women. But inside the White House, her feeling was it felt like a male locker room. Uh, You know, there was a lot of testosterone in the place. Um, Women, you know, though they were in at the table, uh, they often felt like they didn't belong at the table or they weren't treated like they belonged at the table. So she got opportunities in her career that um, in part because people wanted women at the table. But even when she got to the table, it was often very difficult. Um, mm. So this leads me, I'm sorry, I might be going on too long, but I'll just make a, no, a couple of points because um, we're talking about it. You know, one of the things that I learned from her career was, all right, so how did she end up advancing? You know, one of my phrases is lean in when it matters. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Sheryl Sandberg wrote a book, Lean In. Yellen's view was she she didn't feel that, she she had to or wanted to just lean in to be heard because she was a woman. Uh-huh. Um, she wasn't a person who would pound the table just because she felt people weren't listening to her. She was a person who would pound the table when she thought she had something important to say. Hmm. And she was someone who stood up to Vice President Gore, for instance, when they had disagreements over climate change um, strategies she was a person who stood up to Federal Reserve officials when she didn't agree with their strategies for dealing with the financial crisis. She did pound the table aggressively. Um, but, you know, after work, she would go out and have a martini with you and let her hair down, so to speak, even though it's very short um, <laughs> and and relax. She was not like wound up to be heard. But if she had, you know, and again, she carried with her always this kind of lesson from a mother to have her homework done. Um, <laughs> if she felt like she knew something that people weren't getting, she would be damn sure that other people knew uh, were hearing what she had to say. But it sounds like it sounds like there's a very special quality in her because it, it sounds like it, she was able to put her ego aside. Like you said, it's not to be heard just because I'm a woman or not to be heard for 
for my view, but because this is important and needs to be said, if they're not getting it, this is important for the greater good, right? She, again, we go back to this greater sense of purpose and that this is an important task, right? The duty, yeah. like the sense of responsibility. Um, yeah. it's something that I'm seeing in this character. Um, yeah. And also I would say, I mean, I think you put your finger on something else, which is also, um, some sense of sense, some sense of humility. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could totally see that. I could totally see that. Now, John, I, I, I have to ask you, um, about your own career. Um, we talked about, um, uh, Janet Yellen, but I have to ask you about your career because it, it is kind of unusual to, to see somebody you've been in the Wall Street Journal since 1997. Um, you've had a very successful career in journalism. I, I even read somewhere that your father, wakes up in the morning and reads the Wall Street Journal. So I could only imagine like he's chefing nachas, like he just gets this like pride, right? For his son. But my yeah, question yeah, is- ma- Yeah, maybe. But if I haven't had a story in the paper for a little while, I say, what's what's going on? Are you okay? There you go. What's the matter? There you go. Exactly. So, Why did you come up with a 99? Why not a hundred? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I got that too when I was a kid. You're right. Yeah, exactly. So that's yeah. exactly where I was going. My first my first B in high school, his response was, well, there goes the 4.0. There, I- yeah. Yes, we can all see it, right? We saw it in Janet Yellen. We see it here. So your father, a doctor, an immigrant who made it, when you show up and you say, this is what I want to do with my life, were were your parents skeptical? Were they suspicious about this career choice? No, in fact, uh, my my father, I remember the conversation very clearly that, you know, Uh I was some a few years on in college. And I said, you know, I, I, you know, I want to be a writer. I want to be a journalist. And he said, and I, you know, when I kind of said to him, I, you know, there's, I might not make a lot of money doing that. And he said, you got to do what you love. And, yes, you know, he said, if him. You, he said, if you do what you love, you'll do well at it. And eventually you'll be rewarded. If you do something you don't love, you won't do well and you won't be financially rewarded. So, uh, no, I, that was, I, I, I remember that advice very, very clearly. Amazing. And by the way, I was just having a a conversation. This is totally not related to this, but I have to say it on this podcast on Jewish wisdom and relating to career choices and how that is the Jewish approach to choosing a career, by the way, exactly what your father told you, which is Mm. totally in a way counter to what we often hear, right? We often hear, well, how's that going to make you money, kid? You know, mm. and we kind of grow up with that mentality. St- yeah. Strive. You I know. mean, he did want all of his kids to become doctors, but only because he wanted to hand his practice off to somebody else. But none of us, none of us did. Oh, um, wow. Uh, so, like, for me, ironically, I saw his long hours. I, I guess I work kind of long hours too. But yeah, no, I was just. It's interesting that now that you raise it, because. You know, in many ways, my dad and I were totally different. He was kind of very scientifically oriented, but he always loved words. And I say this in the dedication um, to my book. I never put two and two together until I actually wrote the book. But, you know, my dad was an immigrant. He had to learn the English language fresh. And he was always trying to teach us big words at the dinner table. Mm. And um, that kind of gave me just a fascination with words in, in my own right that I never connected back to him you know, until I became an adult. Wow. That's so interesting. And, and, and with that, as a, as a senior writer for the wall street journal, you live and breathe 
money, economics, personal finance. Um, now that we went on this path, talking about lessons from your father, are there any, you know, perhaps you, you know this, like some of the most important financial lessons really come from our home of origin, right? So any other lessons that stand out regarding your financial life that, that you feel like either served you or maybe they didn't really serve you, but that really, you know, shaped your relationship with money, with work, your behavior in, a, in adulthood with your finances? Well, so, um, uh, first of all, I'll say I became a financial writer accidentally. I took one economics huh. course in college and I got a C in it. Um, I, I blame that on the fact that the class is met at eight o'clock in the morning on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> um, and also because the way they taught it in college was so abstract. It just, I know my brain just didn't connect with it. Um, uh, I wanted to be a war correspondent and, uh, I wanted to travel the world and be a foreign correspondent. And I did a little bit of that. I came back from one round of travels after uh, I graduated from college and just needed work. And I accidentally got a job um, uh, covering economic statistics and discovered that it was actually kind of interesting. That's a whole other story. In terms of lessons, I think I'll refer back not to myself, but to Janet Yellen, because um, I, I, I have thought quite a bit about that. You know, I mentioned this idea about lean in when it matters. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked about this idea about have a purpose. Um, so I take a couple of other lessons from her. Those are two, lean in when it matters, have a purpose. The third one is do your homework, um, uh, which is uh, the, the, the lesson she gets from her mother. And then the fourth one, I will say, is to find good partners. Mm. And this brings me back to the love story. Um, she and George Akerlof formed a partnership that allowed each of them to flourish in their own right um, as, as parents and uh, as economists and academics and, and policymakers. And I'm certain that each of them would tell you that that, that partnership um, was central uh, to what they were able to accomplish in in their lives um, together. So those would be my four lessons. And I think they that applies to anything related to career and money. Find good partnerships, do your homework, lean in when it matters. And uh, let me see, what was the fourth one? Oh, um, ha have a, uh, have a purpose. Purpose. Right. Right. It wasn't, I think it was, I think it was Warren Buffett who said that the person you marry is the most important financial decision you'll ever make. Uh, something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I think it might, it might've been his partner whose name I'm drawing a blank on or, or Warren Buffett, but it was some wise man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> some wise financial guy, yeah. <laughs> but no, there, I, I certainly believe that there's a lot of, there's a lot of truth to that. Now back to, back to Yellen and her decision and the time you call it upheaval, right? The, the time that she's been in is, is this, is this going to be a stamp on her record? I mean, or do you think, you know, I, I know she says that there's going to be a soft landing and maybe there won't be a recession and it, inflation will get under control before the end of the year, hopefully earlier than, you know, the later part of the year. Mm -hmm. What, what do you think, John? What, what's going to, what's going to be? Yeah, it is a dark mark and a stain on her record. I mean, we had the largest inflation breakout that we've had since 
the 1970s. Now, is she solely to blame for that? No, absolutely not. Mm. Uh, she just came at a wrong time. Pardon me. Does she just come in at a wrong time? Just well, no, she played a role in it. So, uh, so you know, we had the we had a shock to the economy, a historic shock in the form mm-hmm. of COVID, and then we had another shock to the economy in the form of the government's response to COVID. Right. Uh, which the Federal Reserve pushed interest rates to zero. Um, the Trump administration first, you know, pumped out money into households and businesses in the form of relief checks and rent relief and uh, student loan relief. It was a huge stimulus to consumer demand. And then the Biden administration came in after all of that and did more stimulus. Again, right? Right. And she yeah, blessed the, that in a American way. the American Rescue Plan, and she blessed that. So she owns part of that. Uh-huh. You know, and you can't kind of take that away. She wasn't the only one, but she did bless it. You know, so now, so then the question becomes, all right, you know, uh, she said it would be transitory. It didn't go away in 2022 as expected. We're seeing signs now at the beginning of 2023 that it is receding, mm-hmm. you know, so that stain might fade a little bit. But then there are going to be that now there's another shock to the economy coming, which is the response to the last two shocks, which is for the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates. This is about money matters, right? Uh, the cost of money is now going up in the form of higher mortgage rates and credit card and auto loan rates. And that is done by the Federal Reserve with the intention of slowing economic growth. So we could have a recession in 2023. We live in very turbulent times. You know, the analogy that I have is think it for a second about a fish tank. Uh-huh. Uh, Imagine dropping a rock in the fish tank. Well, by the time that rock gets to the bottom of the tank, you still have a lot of waves splashing around. Mm-hmm. Now, we've had four rocks dropped in the tank all within a period of three years. We had COVID and then we had the government's response to COVID in the form of all the stimulus. And then we had Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And now we have the, redraw, the withdrawal of a lot of this stimulus. There's, that's a, there's a lot of turbulence. We're living through a very turbulent moment in the economy, and she is the person in charge. So, uh, you know, what, what looked like a pretty good record, I think, when, and w- w- when she left the Fed uh, in 2018 is now a more complicated record. And it's going to mm-hmm. take historians, I think, some time to form their final judgments on her. You know, I, I guess what I tried to do is, is write the first piece of that history, um, but also write about the history that led to it. Um, yeah. And there's there's a lot there that, that I try to go through, a lot of economic turbulence that we've been through in the last 25 years that I think have created a public um, that's really right now very skeptical about the elites in our country. Mm. including policymakers, including lawmakers, including courts, police, and maybe especially journalists. Um, and this is another lesson I take from writing this book is that there's this really kind of serious backlash in this country right now against elites um, mm-hmm. that we all have to be mindful. There's a, there's a lot of trust that has to re- be rebuilt, you know, and, you know, kind of trying to reflect on, on yelling, On the one hand, I think you can say that she's, you know, she's made some mistakes, but kind of going back to that humility and public mission, I think it would be hard to argue that she she did it out of the venality that a lot of other people are acting with. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I like her.
fight this turbulence. And if there's, you know what, just not to end on a, a negative uh, note, if there's something we've learned from history and you know it from your family's history, I mean, within a Jewish context, turbulence passes and, you know, this is not as bad as what our grandparents and parents maybe have went through. So, you know, you know, well, since we started the conversation by talking about Jewish mothers, I'll end it. Well, I'll I'll talk about mine. Um, My mom passed away. Let me see, 14 years ago, Mm. she was a writer and a historian in her own right. And she had a theory that history turned like a kaleidoscope and that the configurations are always turning and the the shapes that you see in place today are going to move a little bit over the next year or two and create the ground for some new set of configurations and that we can see the makings of these configurations in the past, but a lot of them end up surprising us and and the way Mm -hmm. they shift. As I was writing this book, I had really that sense of my mother kind of leaning over my shoulder, kind of going from chapter to chapter, watching the configurations turn. And the turbulence that I'm talking about today is, you know, a turbulence that's going to lead to some new configuration and there's going to be some better in it and there's going to be some worse in it. And we have to do our best to make the most of it for ourselves and our families, but also try to leave a slightly better world behind for our children as we go. Beautifully said. That's so nice. Thank you so much, John. I want to remind everybody the title of your new book, Yellen, the trailblazing economist who navigated an era of upheaval. And the upheaval might not be over, but we can certainly lean on you to keep covering it and helping us through it. Thanks for being here. And thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thanks again to John for joining us. Again, the book is called Yellen, The Trailblazing Economist Who Navigated an Era of Upheaval. See you back here on Friday. Be sure to send in your questions and I'll be here to answer them. In the meantime, this is a great time to leave a review. As you heard, we just passed the 300th mark. This is episode 302 and I'm sending coffee to the first 10 people who leave a review and send in a screenshot of their review. So head over to that Apple Podcast app on your phone and leave your review and rating. Capture the review via screenshot and send that in to yael at yaeltrush.com or DM me on Instagram, yael at yaeltrush. See you here Friday. Have a great rest of your week.